and welcome to the sit down where we have conversations with creators from across this beautiful motherland of ours. My name is Malcolm Boy, a filmmaker and an all-round story lover. Today we are sitting down with Amil Shivji, an award-winning director from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. He has made amazing films such as Shushine, Samakim Changani and Aisha. If you want to know more about Tanzania filmmaking from the aspect of activism, neo-colonialism, cultural and political imperialism, this is the man to talk to. And luckily we have him with us to be able to share his journey so far in this process of storytelling. We are recording this over Zoom, so we apologize for any sound inconsistencies that we might have. So sit down and settle in. Good, good, good. How are you? Right, man. All right. So, how how has this year been for you, by the way? Well, this year has been uh, interesting to say the least. I was in Cape Town uh, in post production for my latest film. Uh, it's yeah. called Vuta Nikovute, Tug of War. Um, we had shot. I was living in Zanzibar two years prior, researching on the film, considering the 1950s in in colonial oh my Zanzibar. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. So it was a it was a big project. It was very ambitious. And although Zanzibar is like, you know, World Heritage Site and buildings are there, yeah. the architecture is there, there's always like oh, a yeah, generator sure. or like an electric wire hanging. So yeah. it was quite tough to shoot a, a period film. But we did it yeah. and we shot it in November. We wrapped in November 2019. I came back to Dar es Salaam for one week. To yeah. do some dialogue recording and just grab some stuff, some voiceovers and... And uh, the film is very musical. We have a lot of live bands in the film. I wanted to do something oh, wow. as well. Yeah. It's a uh, musical and a period piece. Why are you not jumping off the bridge with this? What is going on? <laughs> it wasn't a musical, but it's very musical. <laughs> uh, but yes, I was jumping off the bridge with this. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was I mean, very okay. ambitious. And I can, I can see, I, I don't know enough about the Zanzibar culture, but I can see a lot of music, a lot of music in it. Yeah. Well, you see, something that we we uh, even in near yeah, mainland that we don't remember or we've conveniently forgotten after the nineteen was that Zanzibar was a hotspot of different cultures that brought in and yeah. developed these Zanzibari identity. It wasn't mm-hmm. one or the other, you know. Even when yeah. British colonialists were there, their forms of divide and rule and segregation very many times didn't make sense because for people, it wasn't a racial distinction as easy as it was because there was like centuries of, you know, intercultural marriages and intercultural traditions coming together to form that Swahili identity. So the music, yeah. everything from like the Indian Bollywood influenced uh, yeah. cinema songs yeah. to um, Tarab, Arabic Tarab music, yeah. the Swahili sized Tarab music, you know, yeah, yeah. and even to the English club, they were playing the classical kind of jazz uh, uh, stuff from the 1940s, 50s. Yeah. So all that came together. And that's why when I was making the period film, I felt like it would be incomplete without somehow addressing this musical scene that was there. Mm, you know? mm, mm. So when I, so I was, I came back to Dar for a week. And when I did, that was a time, now we're talking about mid-March. Yeah. It's like we're now, you know, the coronavirus is starting to spread. Yeah. And in South Africa, it was in its very early stages. I think when I left, there were 60 confirmed cases. 
Yeah. Um, so there wasn't a huge sense of fear yet. Yeah. Um, no one, I think, on the continent especially, was expecting things to blow out of proportion. Yeah. Um, so I came back for a week, and then I, by the end of that week, there was a sense that you know things could get a bit worse. Countries mm. started closing off their borders. Yeah. And so, on and so forth. Maybe we should give it a couple more days, just yeah. to kind of see how things play out. Yeah. And in those days, South Africa closed its borders. Mm. So I I was supposed to go back, but I ended up being in Dar. And for three and a half months, we just paused on the edit, uh, which was the longest three and a half months of my life. I can imagine. Like, what is that? Yeah, because what do you do? You know, you have this film that's you thought was close to reaching a stage of completion. Yeah. And suddenly you're like torn apart from it and from that process yeah. and that expectation and that delivery. Yeah. And now you're just sitting here waiting in a sense of, you know, idle, like being extremely idle about it and not sure what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it came to a point where we realized that this is not going to be solved anytime soon, yeah, we continued remote editing. Yeah. Uh, um, but what it did in a very funny and I guess obvious way was that yeah. three and a half months yeah. being away from the work allowed you, me and my I, I thought, uh, look, yeah exactly right? we look back, back at the film and the timeline yeah, yeah. Was like I feel not detached but I feel more confident to experiment with things yeah I was thinking about you know because mm, mm. uh, the film you know films they never really end I can always go back to a film. I can go back to my first film and recut it and still enjoy the story that's been told. Yeah. So, you know, and, and the, where we had reached with the film, there was still a sense of like, it wasn't done, you know? Yeah. It wasn't, yeah. we hadn't been able to crack the code yet. Yeah. Um, so we went in and we're like, let's just experiment. Let's just try new things. Mm-hmm. We're not rushing to deadlines. That's what circuit is all up in the air. Let's mm-hmm. just use this opportunity to try something new. Yeah. So, you know, I printed every single frame of every single scene. Yeah. Uh, on little, like, small sheets and then I put them on my wall. <laughs> oh, my God. You had time. You had time. <laughs> I had a lot of time. <laughs> and I did a literal, like, literally a paper cut of the film. What? So, like, put it up on, as, based on the, on the timeline and I would move around the images. Yeah. And, like, just, you know, randomly, like, take an image and put it there. But now what happened, which was funny, again, which is quite coincidentally, was that when I put it up on the wall, yeah. it took up the entire wall, right? Top to bottom, left to right. So it was still a little bit hard to like trying to figure out, okay, like what's happening where? Yeah. How will that affect the story? Yeah. And I was doing this and then it took me the whole day to just stick everything up on the wall. And I was so excited to take a look at it, like to take a step back. Right. Yeah. yeah, physically. Like- look at it. Yeah. By the time that happened, it was around 7 p.m. and power went out. <laughs> <laughs> so this moment, this climatic moment that I was waiting for. Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't just go like wait for the next day. I felt like I was in the momentum, I was in the right vibe, in the right energy yeah. to look at it in that moment, you know, yeah. for that, that, yeah. that utopia moment. Yeah. So I grabbed a flashlight. No. And I grabbed the flash and I changed the settings so that, you know, it's wider, the, the, the ray of light ends up being wider. Yeah. And I went as far as I could in the room, which isn't very far, it's a small room. Yeah. But what I found out was that as soon as I switched on the light yeah. and I was moving it around, 
it almost worked like watching a film in the cinema. Exactly, right? like you're projecting. Of, like coming from one picture to the other. What? Yeah. Come so, on. <laughs> That's crazy. I know. So when I realized that it was actually better to do that than to try and take out a picture and move it around. Oh. Not idea. Yeah. So I would instead play around, I'll, I'll like point the torch towards one picture and then rush it to another one. Yeah. All the way the other end of the wall and yeah. push it to the same timeline and that way my mind, mind was working like you know it was being projected like i was watching the new timeline yeah and that allowed me you know, apart from it being such a cool story to tell yeah uh, it allowed me to also watch the film in in a very different way you know in 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 ways that might have been too physically laborious to do it by physically moving things or by cutting on a timeline yeah, it's just motion, you're moving a flashlight. That's all. Yeah, right? yeah. And so I got this, you know, three, four different narrative angles into the story, um, which was super exciting. And I went and I spoke to the editor. You, uh, I, I, I can't imagine what the editor said. I can't imagine. I was like, what? You did what? No. Where? This, what are you talking about? This is what he told me. He's like, send me a picture. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> You know, he has three screens in front of him of timelines and hard drives. And I'm like, I have a wall of pictures, right? And it's and a flashlight. A <laughs> and a flashlight. Oh, God. So we all laughed about it. And, yeah. um, but what it did is that it kind of gave us, like, it reinvigorated the energy to the oh, timeline. Yeah. So we took that and ran with it, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Um, kind of started recutting it and recutting it. And we reached a point where we're like, okay, we have three different possibilities yeah. of telling the story. Yeah, and there's probably more, but yeah. there's also like certain contracts that you have to honor, you know, with the editor and the time, yeah, days. So yeah. we said, you know what, I think we've gone as far as we can with this approach. Kind of also wanted to meant with maybe a new editor as well, yeah, to see like what they would bring into the into the fold, you know, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of where we're at right now. We're going to be working with a new editor yeah. who has a very like almost polar opposite experience with mm. their work mm. in the film world, mm. um, you know, from a different part of the world and also just kind of experience the work they've done. Mm. And I like that polemic approach to mm. the work that I do. Yeah. Um, it's kind of all my films in my process, uh, mm. in my research and production, and even in my distribution strategies for mm. the work that I've done. I think a polemic approach isn't a negative thing. I think yeah. it allows you to create and synthesize new ideas. For sure. You know? For sure. And, and it takes longer and it's stressful. Yeah. But what it does is that it, it really makes me feel confident that I've been able to look at things from two different angles mm. rather than be stubborn about one. You know? mm-hmm. So what happens when you, what happens when you, you're having the new editor and the, you don't like the approach as much as you like the first one? Do you say, oh, thank you very much. That was a good experiment. I, I think I'll go back to the older one. Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think, well, if that were the case, um, then yeah, that, uh, you still have the hard drive, you still have the project, you still have the timelines. It's not going anywhere. Um, so it's still like, okay, you can go back to that older version and just yeah. kind of finesse it the way you want. But I think the point isn't to get a better film as such. It's, the, it's something, you know, one thing I've realized making films is, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's more of a blessing than a curse when we make films on the continent here, especially in a place like Tanzania that 
doesn't have a developed film industry, yet there's hunger and need and a desire to mm. make moving images, is that we get to dictate our own stories and release strategies and, and, um, and edits and, mm. and language of cinema in a, in a very early stage in our career, mm. you know? Mm. As opposed to um, people in the Hollywood system or people in European systems that are kind of being told what to do for a long time until they're able to re-level where they can get the power to say, this mm. is what I want, this is what I want to do. True, true. Obviously, the, 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 the reality is that you get to do that in an early stage of your career, but you're not able to access as many spaces internationally mm. as you would if you were in that yeah. system. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with that because filmmaking is, is not about having a one-hit wonder. I mean, I don't think there's any filmmaker that was saying, I want to make one film for it to do well and then that's it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And these ideas of success, these ideas of making it, it's very contradictory because we never stop making films. Mm. Right? I mean, that's the, that's the dream, to not mm. stop making films. Mm. We're in the arts. We're telling mm. stories. So mm. It doesn't matter how well your film does or how mm. many awards it picks up. It's not this lead ladder approach. But I've done that now. I'm going to do this. Like there's something more. Mm. Like there's not more of a film you can make. It's yeah. another film. So you know you can experiment with a different story, or you can try a different approach, a different aesthetic, or a different format. You can mm. try. I don't know those kind of things. But it's not linear. It's not top down. Yeah. I see it. So I think in that approach, it's like with a new editor, what yeah. I'm excited about is a new way to tell the story. Yeah. But not necessarily to say like, I'm looking to tell a better story, but I'm looking mm. to tell a story in a, in a new way, mm. which me as an individual, mm. I might enjoy more. Like it serves my story better. And that I, doesn't necessarily need a better film in the eyes of the audience. Yeah. I mean, for me, the question is now, at, at this point, it feels like you've had, you had so much time to almost, it's almost like a metamorphosis of your ideas and your approach to cinema. Yeah. Where did it all start? At what point? Was it like you are a child in your diapers and you're like, ah, ah. yeah, you just, you know, the first, the first toy you picked was a camera, like, <laughs> where Listen, did this journey you. begin? Let me, let me tell you a story that I was reminded of actually two days ago when I was having dinner with my family. My, uh, my sister and her husband recently, well, not recently, a year ago, had a child. Yeah. So I have a niece for the first yeah. time. My name is Zoya. Yeah. And I see her running around and playing with toys. And I was like, oh, we need to get more toys for her. Yeah. And I was reminded of a story that when I was a baby, when I was very young, I think two, three years old, my mother was doing her master's at the time and my father was quite busy with the land commission. So he was mm. traveling around the country, you know, interviewing people about land rights and so on mm. and so forth. So I was put into a box, mm. right? One of those cardboard, you know, fragile boxes mm. that people just pick up to put in their like kind of things in. Mm. And I was put in a box and I think I was given like one toy, which they had found in yeah. the house. Like one of those action figures, a small action yeah. figure. Yeah. And that was kind of my life for a year. And obviously, everyone's no. like shocked by that story, right? Yeah. Like, even you're like, what? Yeah. But I never cried. And somehow I was able to really enjoy that space. And I really believe, in, or I want to believe, that's where my imagination began to grow. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, with, within that box, 
I'm able to like kind of think of like different possibilities, right? And like yeah. all these different stories. Yeah. Um, I've always had like uh, a nick for like telling stories or remember my friends in school would always be like, oh, you know, you exaggerate all the time. That didn't actually happen that way. And I was like, yeah, it did, but it would be interesting if I told you how it actually happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the reason why I listen to the story is because I've kind of pushed the border a little bit. Exactly, exactly. So storytelling was always something that I was keen on. Yeah. But never, like, I never had this idea of cameras or cinema or film. Never, right? It was never a thing. I mean, I studied the national curriculum in Dar es Salaam. Uh, you know, the most creative you get is, like, chemistry. All right, like, like when you're adding <laughs> a lot of together. people, a lot of people would not say that's the most creative thing it gets. You know, it's uh, you know when you do the balancing the equation in chemistry, I found yeah. that creative. I'm like, I don't know what it's going to be. You know, it's like this. Uh, what's the answer going to be? Like, who knows? where's okay. the turning point? What's the climax? You know? Oh my god, um, <laughs> that's definitely should rearrange. I think people have a very different idea of science. It's like, yeah, yeah sciences are arts. <laughs> They're arts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it was, yeah. So I didn't, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't exposed to that stuff. Um, obviously, I read a lot. I loved reading. Yeah. I loved uh, writing. But in terms of the education I was receiving, there was yeah. an opportunity to hone into those, those crafts. Um, it wasn't until I, so the, the school I went to was one of the Aga Khan schools. Um, we were doing the national curriculum and then they introduced Cambridge when mm. I was in uh, Form 3. So then suddenly we got pulled out of the national curriculum and took on Cambridge Ooh. curriculum, yeah. where it was a bit very disorienting. I but at imagine. the same time, we were introduced to like English literature, you mm. know, um, and Macbeth and Shakespeare. So I just like went crazy. I was like, this is really amazing because we started analyzing it and doing mm. deconstructing yeah. everything from the language, mm. you know, to the approach to like metaphors and similes and so on and so forth yeah like really getting into literature you know and so I loved it it was, mm. it was a, I said reading things very differently than how I used to read them mm. and kind of like you know identifying like the author's intention so it felt like you're having a conversation with the author you know whether it was Shakespeare or J.K. Rowling at the time it mm. felt like I was having a conversation with them and that really got me into the craft a bit more so yeah. I wasn't just a viewer or a reader I was actually getting into like okay how it's being done you know and learning it yeah so I think I remember when I was asked uh, later in the years in my final years in A-levels like what do you want to be you know you gotta you know the typical you're like in your final two years of high school and they're like yeah. okay so what do you want to do yeah and I would say I want to be a writer um and they're like oh okay and people would laugh because like what does that mean yeah so I interned at a um, at a local magazine yeah, they call themselves a newspaper, but let's be honest, they're a magazine. I ate them there when I was 16 because I wanted to write, and uh, they were really kind enough to give me a full page to just kind yeah. of write on what I wanted to. And I would want to write about like social realities, daily life. Um, but that was kind of my focus. Yeah. Yeah. I would write about like the local football team on, on in the neighborhood. Yeah. And like them trying to like like where they would play like they'll wait for cars to you know keep they would wait for the cars to finish going through the road and then they would like take over the road and play like a game and then wait until another car passes and like that yeah and then i wanted to write about like corruption you know as a 16 year old like, like mm. look at the police officers <laughs> they're taking a <laughs> you're, in, you're an intense 16 year old yeah. what's going on <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was an intense 16 year old man <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so I wanted to write about that stuff. And the magazine's yeah. like, well, you know, we don't really do that. But, yeah. you know, no one reads us anyways. So might as well. So, yeah. so I was able to do it. And I wrote those things and people would read it. And in my area, the sales got like a boosted because people wanted to read about people they knew. Mm, right. Yeah, of so, course. So the writing, what I learned was that the more you make it relatable to your yeah. audience, for sure. In terms of actually people that they can see and understand and, and get to know or know of, the yeah. more they can find this affinity towards a story, right? Yeah, yeah. This is like a teenager in me just being like, oh, this is really cool yeah. that we're able to like talk to people in a way that I haven't been able to talk to them before. Yeah. Or get them to experience things through a different paradigm, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, it kind of like made me feel more confident in this approach to journalism. Yeah. It's a viable career, yeah. you know, um, somewhat, and uh, I can write. And I feel like I'm still part of like society and giving some kind of intervention. Yeah. Um, so when I finished high school, I had kind of decided I'm going to go to University of Cape Town, UCT. Yeah. Because they had a uh, journalism program. And uh, I think I was going to do the doubles of mass comm and, and journalism. Yeah. Yeah, I finished high school in April 2008. Yeah. And uh, the University of Cape Town was only taking the new intake in January 2009. Mm. So that means I had a good eight months. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm 18. I was playing football every day. Yeah. You know, I had friends and I was hanging out. So my parents were, were both quite academic oriented. Yeah. Were saying, um, okay, so what are you going to do for eight yeah. months? I was yeah. like, oh, I'm just going to kick it. Like, you know, like, what, what else am I going to do? What? Like, what? What else yeah, It's like, you know, I, I, I'm going to I'm gonna apply to Cape Town. I think I'm probably feel very confident about getting in because I have yeah. good grades. Yeah. I spoke to the university and they feel confident about me getting in. Mm. And they're like, no, you know, you must be more than one university just in yeah. case something happens. But if you don't get in, you know, the usual kind of like training of like, you know, you got to have more than one option. Of course. So I was like, ah, you know, I don't think that's necessary. But at the time, my sister was applying for a master's. Mm. So she was downloading forms of different universities. Mm. You know, University of Toronto, New York University, and NYU, all these different mm. universities. Mm. Her focus was on history. She's a historian. Um, so I was like, so I told her, do me a favor, right? Every form you download for your master's application, download an undergrad form, mm. right? For the university yeah. that you're applying to. So I can just fill it out and make everyone happy. But I'm yeah. not interested in doing it. Yeah. So I just, I don't even remember how many forms I filled. I would just fill out things. Yeah. And because I was interested in writing, I wouldn't mind writing like the statement of intent or, yeah. you know, like this like, you know why I want to join your university and all yeah, that. Yeah, I did all of that and I sent it off and I didn't give you know two thoughts to it. I was like, whatever, just send it off. I know I'm going to Cape Town. Yeah. And then when the responses came in, because I was the first batch of uh, international baccalaureate students in my in my high school, so I applied for. I sent in my letters. Yeah. Um, and I started getting responses. Yeah. And there was some yes. There was some no. There was some waiting list. Yeah. Um, but I was just kind of like collecting these because I wasn't doing anything with them. And one of the universities responded saying that I had fifty uh, percent scholarship uh, into into the program. Yeah. And, which is good, but it's still like an expensive amount because Western schools 
especially for international students. I can imagine. Very pricey. Yeah. Very. Yeah. You know, I was like, okay, cool. And I just put it on the side and continued just kicking it. Yeah. (laughs) They sent me another letter within a week and a half. A week and a half? Yeah. They took another look at at the scholarship letter and saying, we think you're more eligible for this other scholarship grant, which is primarily for African students. Yeah. Full scholarship that covers full tuition. Whoa. Stipend, living fees, everything. It was a significant uh, amount. Even living what? Everything. Like, no they way. Were to to no, exactly. That's insane. So I looked at it. I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. But I ignored it. I didn't tell anyone about it. Because when I looked, uh, I was like, this is interesting. But when I looked into it, I realized that I had applied for the film program. And oh. this was, I had no recollection of applying oh. for this program. Oh. Um, so it was it was a bit tricky because I said film. What am I going to do with that? Right? I yeah. don't get into journalism. Yeah. Uh, I just like you know put it on the side, and I was like, I'm not gonna. There's no point of telling anyone because it's just unnecessary. Yeah. So after after some time, they contacted my school. No way. My high school, and they said, look, there's this guy, the student of yours. What is wrong with the university? What is wrong? Sent a letter to, and he hasn't responded. <laughs> So we don't know if he's got it. Like, has he been like, is he alive? Is he getting yeah. emails? Like, can get this information. Now you have to remember my school, the, the, I was the, like the guinea pig. Like my, my batch of students were the guinea pigs. We were the first international baccalaureate program. Yeah. So they wanted to like highlight their success stories. Of course. So they went and made a big deal about it, saying congratulations. And they made it public. And he got a full scholarship no. to York University in Toronto, Canada. And um, this is great news. And my parents were like, so there's this thing that we read in the newsletter. No. Did you get the scholarship? I was like, yeah. They're like, why didn't you tell us? I said, because I'm not going. Like, yeah, but we haven't discussed it. And I was like, yeah, but it's film. What am I going to do with the film? And like, that doesn't matter. Like, that's the second step. Let's first, like, you need to accept the scholarship first. Yeah. And then you can make the decision that you don't want to go. Yeah. Because there's a limited amount of time where you can accept or not or, or, or say no. Yeah. Like, so accept it because this is good for you. This is great for your application and just for you as a person. Yeah. And you got to receive the scholarship. So I accepted it. Yeah. And I asked them if I accepted, is there a way of pulling out? They're like, okay, so we'll give you a, until this deadline, this date, if you yeah. want to pull out of the scholarship. So I accepted it. And then this, my high school made a big deal about it. Yeah. Then I had a point where I had this long discussion with my family. Yeah. Who I was like, there's no point of me going to the school. And, and taking this opportunity away from someone else who deserves it more, who actually wants to do film. Yeah. Because they only selected four students from... So who convinced you? Is it your, your parents? parents? Is it the school, the, 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 the high school counselor who was so ecstatic, the fact that one of the students got like a full scholarship um, to go study yeah. in one of the schools. Uh, and obviously there were other students yeah. who got scholarship as well. But like, you know, this was like good for the school, for the... For the for their little propaganda machine yeah so i think the from what i remember the conclusion was made that i go for one year i go there and if i don't like it i can always go back to cape town um but i should give it a shot because it would be good to experience also you know maybe the arts and film might be more interesting and it's first year of university so it's not like you're committing you know the rest of your life to it i say okay fine let's do it one year and give it a shot and then i can always go back to cape town I went to Toronto. It was my first time being in uh, in Canada. You can imagine how cold it is there. 
I know the the difference. Yeah. I went there and uh, I got then I realized I was in film studies. I didn't even know the difference mm. between film studies and film production. Oh, so this is more film studies is more like understanding the history, the theory of yeah. cinema. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I got there and, and uh, everyone's like, "Oh, you're in the boring part of film. You're like studying cinema. You're not going to yeah. be producing." Film. Yeah. So as that's what everyone was saying. So I was like, "Oh no." No, this yeah. is a complete mistake. This is probably going to be pointless. So I started, yeah. like you know, already having a negative approach to it. And when we started studying it, it was it's very Eurocentric. You know, like give an example: yeah. a textbook, probably a thousand two hundred pages, textbooks on the history of narrative cinema. And there was one page. No, okay, not one page. I think two pages. African cinema. And what is you would get into like Italian neorealism or Soviet montage or French yeah. Yeah. and those would be chapters and chapters and chapters, right? I felt very iced and obviously apart from the fact that you're like the only person of color in classrooms or you might be one of three people of color in an entire lecture room, obviously the only African yeah. student, the only international student, quite yeah. an isolating experience. Um, yeah, so I'm going through all these things. So I know I go and I meet with the professor who, who is quite a well-known film theorist in, in North America. And I sit down with him yeah. and I say, what am I going to do with this? This is great, interesting information. But one, what am I going to do with this? And two, especially for the African context. Obviously, he said, look, we are, we acknowledge that our system, our, our education is very Eurocentric. So mm. maybe, you know, the options of careers, like you could teach cinema, you could be a professor, you could be an academic, but this program will not give you the skills that you need to make film. Because mm. then it's pointless. What am I doing here? I'm not going to go mm. back to Tanzania and mm. teach Eurocentric cinema. <laughs> Same <laughs> right? like this, Why would I yeah. do that? So yeah. I wanted to pull out the program. You know, I did four and a half months and realized this is the wrong program. I did and contact my parents and say, during the Christmas holidays, that's when I should pull out because I still have time to go to Cape Town. Everyone agrees, we're on the same yeah. page. As we're about to do that, York University goes on a strike. No, what? People strike? Wait, are you trying to say that people who strike are away yes, from yes, other yes. African continents? Universities are strike? Okay, strike. wow. Okay. And, you know, a lot of my friends were tutorial assistants, I was supporting them. But being an international student, what that meant is when the university shut down, we were the ones who were left on campus, right? Because I was living on campus. Yeah. So I was like there for two months, just living on campus because, you know, my, my finances were like, like the way you get the scholarship is they find some way to filter it back into their own system. So I was living on campus, I was paying the yeah. tuition fees, was also paying my accommodation fees on campus. And I was on this meal plan. My source of food was through this. I couldn't leave campus. Say, oh, I want to go live somewhere else. There was like five to ten of us on a campus that takes fifty thousand students, right? So during that time, um, what I decided to do is I would go to because one thing you got to give the Western institutions is that the resources, right? That they had this mm. library called SMIL, Sound and Moving Image Library. So I would go there and mm. I mean I became friends with the librarian. They tell me, oh, what are you interested in? And I'm like, oh, I'm interested in cinema. So they start giving me whatever they had. And mm. Mambetti and Medhondo mm. and even films like Baba. Yeah. Everything. I started consuming it. I started watching it. I would take a DVD out every day. 
and go watch it on a laptop. Yeah. That's how I was introduced to this form of storytelling from the 60s all the way to the 80s. Mm. Strong African stories that I fell in love with, you know. Mm. Because I'd already kind of studied somewhat and been exposed to the Eurocentric cinema from that time, realized that mm. in that program, I barely touched on all this stuff that does exist in your own university. My stories, and not, not so yeah. much, like, not so much my individual stories, my stories of the where I grew up and the people that I got to know, the people that I love and care for, the people that I want to commit to, the stories do exist. They're there. Films are there in their own DVD. They're in our own library. We're not analyzing them. We're not spending weeks and weeks learning them, the cultures. Because obviously all these films are also stories of resistance. Some more literally, mm. you know, in, in, in anti-colonial struggles, and some more metaphorically. Yeah. On one hand, I'm full of rage, right? Because I'm not... Have, like yeah. it's being ripped away from me. Second thing is that I'm so excited to know that this has been happening because study mm. European cinema and North American cinema to such a degree in film school, you really analyze mm. the different papers have been written on it and, and wow, the development of it and ideas that are being built. You almost feel like nothing else exists. Like sure. this is the only yeah. thing and anything else that may have existed is a byproduct. Maybe, look, at that time you feel like you want to be sympathetic to your lectures and be like, okay, they're not conscious of this. Now when I look back, because I yeah. lecture at the University of Dar es Salaam, lecturing for the book. Yeah. And it is a conscious effort, right? By excluding African cinema or by only giving it one week in your curriculums, you are consciously excluding it from the mainstream narrative. So I, would, I felt like this attack like I was being suffocated mm. in this program. So I dedicated myself. I mean, I had the strikes, I had time to mm. think. I felt it was important for me to stay in this university and stay in this program and to use the resources that I had access to, tell, to, to not only tell other people about those months and men's and, and, and those films that were being made, but to also kind of like work towards that angle because I wanted to tell those kind of stories through the medium of cinema. Mm. When the mm. strike ended, um, I, it, was, it was a long strike. It was three months, three and a half months. Yeah. finished my first year and I applied to transfer into the film production program. And I got in and it's a very competitive, very competitive program. I entered and it was like a white boys rich club, you know? Like it was most, yeah, right. 95% white, all Canadian. Yeah. Um, but I was yeah. lucky enough to meet a group of people that were very kind and good-hearted. So yeah. I got into the program and the first thing I say was that this is what I'm going to do. My focus is African cinema. And even though the course wasn't being taught anymore, because after budget cuts, that's what you, you, you cut. You cut African cinema. I know. Every <laughs> professor I was with, every lecture, whether it was, of course, we had to do, which was Canadian cinema, a compulsory course, or whether it was film writing, screen writing, one, everything I had to do through the angle of African cinema. So if I were to have to write a paper about one of those Canadian classics, I would do a comparative study with the Battle of Algiers, right? Yeah. Or I would do like an analysis of um, working class characters through Gibraltar. Yeah. Like I had to create my own syllabus from the resources they had. Mm. I forget what I'm trying to do, right? There were mm. some professors mm. who were very helpful with that. They would give me like all the different syllabuses that existed on African cinema. The reading materials, 
And if I wanted anything that didn't exist in the, in the, in the Sound and Moving English Library, they would order it for me. Mm. Over the four years, I was able to kind of create my own curriculum mm. and gain access to the resources. Finished after four years, I felt very confident. Yeah. This perspective yeah. of, of stories from the marginalized communities, but also how to tell stories with a new cinematic language. The entire genre and my approach became one of third cinema movement in the 60s and 70s in Africa and Latin America. So stories in cinema of resistance, anti-oppression, mm. right? Which for me, when I watched that, I was like, if I show this film made in 1969, if I show it today in Tanzania, it's a, it's a hit. Everyone relates to it. People would love it. And it tells the stories of our people, historically and contemporarily. So I just felt like there was this gap between the 60s and now. And that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, I moved back to Dar yeah. immediately. Started showing these kind of films and trying to tell stories in the same angle of third cinema that we learned the system in order to break it. Right? Yeah, so we, we we like so Ben would do things like you know he would have jump cuts in the film, or he would like wouldn't have a problem if the boom appeared in a shot, because mm. breaking this idea of spreading disbelief of the audience making people realize of the presence of the filmmaker. Because it was about a time where black African filmmakers were nowhere to be seen on the scene. This was almost like this violent shake of like, hey, I'm here. I'm here, yeah. And, and, and Latin American cinema did something very similar at the same time. Yeah. This gave me this like, all this energy and excitement of like, we need to do this now, you know? Yeah. I came back, there was a, the DVD industry was kind of at its peak. Mm. You have, you know, what we call bongo movies. Oh, yeah, for sure. Melodramatic storytelling or yeah. and witchcraft um, and not good storytelling, but lots of it. Mm. It's a question of volume. So you have the distributors dictating the storytelling. Because they were these terrible contracts with actors and skip the producer role. So an actor would sign a contract with the distributor saying, I'll give you 10 films for this lump sum of money that I get cash in hand and I will act yeah. and direct in them because it's an easier way for me to make more money. Of course. Yeah. That was kind of the filmmaking scene in, in Tanzania. Yeah. Movies. Now what excited me was that people were making films. That, like that was happening, but it wasn't great films. So when I started making films, you know, people received them and perceived them as like, here's this new filmmaker who's come here to do different things. And I was like, look, one thing I have to be clear about is that I'm not coming here to downgrade bongo movies. Yeah. I'm until today I maintain the same argument that bongo movies shouldn't be seen as a genre. It should be seen as the idea that the name of an industry. Mm. I am part of bongo movies. Claim it. Let's acknowledge it and let's be proud of it. We right? mm. mm. have different genres in it. You can have good filmmaking in bongo movies and you can have bad filmmaking in bongo movies. That's that we need to take in and we need to embrace it. Yeah. Because those filmmakers in the, in the, in the 2000s were making those, what we call bad films, you know, making those films or taking those risks. Yeah. Kanumbas and Kilos and those guys. So I didn't want to come and say no to Bongo movies because the word Bongo movies mm. is synonymous with bad films. Yeah. The films I was making, I would be very adamant and very vocal about, no, we are part of Bongo movies. It's just a different genre. It's a different yeah. different film director's vision yeah. and so over the past seven years that's become kind of like people are taking a look at bongo movies again and saying okay it's it's term it's this industry that's 
developed in Tanzania rather than it being a genre. Yeah, and I think it's a struggle all in the Kenya. Kenya definitely experiences a struggle. You know, how do you identify yourself? You know, identity. Are you proud of your own identity? And you know, definitely. getting into more detail about what is that industry? What is our voice? Yeah. You know. Okay, I can see that. That's kind of how I got into Tanzanian filmmaking. And back, I mean, I was just super naive and didn't know where to begin, you know. Uh, in Canada, they, they train you. They say you got to do 10 years networking. And like, if you want to get done, but you want to be director of photography, you start in the grip team and you meet the right people. And it's very, it's like already planned out for you. Yeah. I came back and I was like, okay, I'm going to like work for other people for like five to seven years and then feel comfortable to go and write and direct my own film. But as soon as I got back, because I had a bachelor's degree in film, you know, I had some... Everyone got yeah, scared. People were like, you know, this guy, we can use him for things, you know. Yeah, fashion yeah. manager. I yeah. After I came back for a TV show, it was very exciting. And then I worked on it for a bit. And then I applied for a grant. France International. It was a script I'd written when I was in school called Shushan. Mm. They loved it and I got the grant. It was 10,000 euros. Um, I was the only one from the East African region. Yeah. There were no strings attached. Like, go shoot your film. We're not going to like look at the script and 10,000 euros was a lot of money. It's a lot of money! <laughs> because I mean, I'm also like comparing it to Bongo movies at the time. Exactly. 10,000 exactly. euros, people have a feature film. Yeah. I have five times that amount for a short film. Yeah. You know? Can you imagine that's insane? And I'm like, if people can do it for two to three thousand, then obviously I can do it for ten, right? Yeah. I had yeah. a lot of confidence about the budget, you know. Yeah. Um, and I had been like kind of this idea had been marinating in my head for a long time. So I also knew exactly what I wanted from the film. So mm. and I got a crew of nine people, people that I knew I'd been meeting and very excited to work with. Mm. And put it on like a real structure of like assistant director. Um, I produced it, really got into like how I wanted to approach it with the actors working with non-professional cast. And I put it out in the world. And I said, you know, I don't know how people will take it. Yeah. No mentors involved. There was no one giving me feedback. Here's an experiment. Let's see how it goes. Mm. To get the cinema to play it, which was a big deal. And it's a 24-minute short film. To even play the cinema, I remember the first day it premiered. Everyone was like, I invited people. It was a private premiere. Yeah. Uh, and I think there were around 60 to 70 people. And they showed up and, you know, Tanzanians, you meet, you talk, everyone's buying their popcorn at the last minute. <laughs> exactly. No, people have to buy tickets. And I was like, fine, I'm not yeah. taking a cut. Then you can reduce So they reduced by 50% the ticket uh, price because I, was, I, Fantastic. I didn't take a cut on it. And because it's a four-minute film, by the time people finished buying their popcorn, when they started walking in, the credits were rolling out. <laughs> the credits were rolling. <laughs> and someone comes out to me, because I was outside, you know, trying to like push yeah. people in, because the cinema said, you get your 24 minutes and that's it. We're not giving you any more time. And someone said, yeah. so does your film start with directed by... <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I, no. I couldn't believe it, right? So I rushed into this, the, the administration offices, into the cinema, and I met with the manager, and I say... You can't do this to me. You know, this is my first film. Everyone's in yeah. there and they're watching the credits. He's like, that's not my problem. That's your fault. We gave you the time. You know, we can't do anything about it. Oh, you man. Up. Oh, man. And, you know, obviously I made the arguments. So I was like, you gotta, you gotta, come on, man. It's 24 minutes. So there was a lot of back and forth. I think it was 10 minutes. Read and I rushed into someone. I'm sweating and I'm flustered and I 
thank you for being there and say we're going to start the film again it's only 24 minutes long so if you go to the washroom you're probably going to miss half of it yeah um so then they realized okay and they sat through and then we did the festival circuit and people loved it and we played at ziff an audience of 500 yeah. students oh. I was actually there. I was actually oh, there. Yes. Yeah, the day played it. I was there. It's a, yeah, it's an amazing it was film. Such yeah. a success at the cinema. It was played at prime time on Friday when all the Zanzibaris come out as well. And people loved it. You know, and we won award people's choice award. Such a boost. That's why Ziff yeah. in place because local filmmakers it's our first kind of like approach and first experience with the with the public crowd and yeah. that you hear them clapping and you hear them laughing or you hear them you know heckling you hear it and it was such a whirlwind of emotion i sat at the back like shoulder to shoulder with you know the audience members i could hear them talking about the film and the one thing that someone came up to me and said was that for the first time they're seeing their culture on screen right yeah yeah that for me I will never forget that because that for me gave me the confidence to keep going forward. The approach that I'm taking, I'm not taking the market approach. I'm experimenting with new stories. Definitely mm. doing that. Yeah. And that's really what like allowed me to push on because I felt I think that if I go back and if things happen differently, mm. I'd have not continued making films. because you just don't know. I knew I was committed to Tanzania. I wasn't sure if this was the right approach. Yeah. But telling alternative stories and being honest to the stories that are existing in our communities, not being like not working with market forces, which obviously meant I'm not making, you know, millions of shillings. I was looking at it as this is the beginning of my life and career. And I think I'm pretty excited about the idea of us just for the for the YouTube section and just and just watching the show and really hopefully jumping a bit into that film and looking at what your thought process was behind it yeah. um so that's definitely something looking forward to but how do you feel like through all this time how do you feel like you've evolved into who do you feel like you've evolved into are you now more into directing are you now it's like more of a producing directing how's the industry feeling you know you're teaching as well yeah it's it's actually very interesting i think there's a lot of things that i've learned along the way because every film i've made i always look at it as the most exciting part is the process you know that mm-hmm. is one of the most exciting things because i do intense amounts of research about the story and the place i made different parts of the country and that also lets me experience my own country for a different because when you make a film you have to win the trust of the community you're making the film about that mm-hmm. doesn't work then i'm not going to make that film so the film in about t junction was about a community that i grew up with and so i knew that story very well i still had to sit down with them and say i'm telling the story how do you feel about it aisha was made in pangani i lived in pangani tanga for 8 months before i started pre production just to win the trust of the people and in those villages that i was working in utani putti my zanzibari film i was in zanzibar for a year and a half because if that's not going to be part of your process then how is it any different when we have you know foreigners coming in and telling these stories through their angles exactly look our countries have a very big divide between the rural and the urban with class divides class ideologies and those existences they dictate how you 
with your images. For sure. Your ideology is sure. based on like what your motivation as a class is. Those are very important conversations that I need to have with myself before I take on the story. Mm. I think that has been, and by doing it in Shoeshine, the confidence to keep doing that in the rest of my films. So by the time I am where I am now, you know, seven years since my first film, I am very confident about that approach and will never not take that approach, regardless of the situation. Really focusing on the research phase, winning the trust and the belief of the community mm. working with that I'm working in. The other thing is that, and I don't know if this is so much an evolution or maybe even a devolution, but yeah. trying to create more of a aesthetic of my own, right? Um, because it's kind of like, I know the stories I want to tell and I enjoy storytelling and the content of yeah. it. And I'm not wavering on that. I feel like at that point where I know the kind of story I want to tell. But what about the craft, the aesthetic? When I got into film, it was about storytelling. I'm not someone who enjoys doing the technical thing. Yeah. But I need to kind of build the language that I'm interested in, in relation to the story. I've been trying to like create an aesthetic of my own and I find that, that I'm still at a point where that sometimes works really well with the storytelling. It conflicts with the story. That's like kind of the journey I'm on right now. Mm. And what you realize is that it's not only is it a long journey, it's a very expensive journey. <laughs> I can imagine. Right? Because yeah. I've been lucky enough to make a film a year. But with the process I take, I mean, it takes a lot of raising of funds and, you know, films are expensive, the budgets are big. It takes a long time. Mm. You're spending all that time producing and raising funds and, you know, pitching, this and that. That by the time you get to the process of actually greenlighting the project... Are you not tired? Yeah. Are you not exhausted? tired, you know? Yeah. Mentally and physically and emotionally exhausted. And then you're like, okay, you've got the money, go shoot the film. And, you know, you're supposed to be excited, but you're not. Like mm. the lights are on, but there's no one home, you know? Exactly. And exactly. that's what I realize now, you know? I realize, especially with my, with my Zanzibari film, the process of research and writing was amazing. It was exciting, you know, meeting people and talking to them, learning about the 1950s. My grandparents, mm. I felt this. Mm. Um, I've always been close to Zanzibar. It's where my film career started. Like every, I've always been, like for me, it was a journey of my own as well. Mm. That was exciting. And I was excited for the directing and the shooting and working with non-professional cast. And we wrote the script in old Zanzibari Swahili, you know, all of that. The process of raising the finance and the producing was so exhausting. Mm. By the time it came to making the film, you just kind of want to take a break and breathe. Yeah, like, oh, I have the funding. Okay, let me take one year break. I'm coming back. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. which wasn't something I faced during Shoeshine or Samaki because these were low-budget films. So I could just kind of hone in and focus on the craft, you know. So that's something I've learned, that the bigger, the more ambitious we get as filmmakers, there has to be a place that also lets you actually be the filmmaker. Yeah. That as African filmmakers, I feel like we're not achieving because when you say, okay, here's the director and here's your European producer, there yeah. is, whether we like it or not, and you know, it's controversial to say, but there is a loss of autonomy. It may not be on purpose. It's just, it's inconsequential. It happens because of that relationship and the dynamics. Yeah. So I think that's important as, as filmmakers on the continent. And there is a movement now, like more filmmakers I talk to, there are more coming to the organization mm. that, you know what, I've done the local, and I've done the international, 
and they're the same. We're finding the same problem. So there has to be a new language that we're able to speak to by ourselves here without compromise. Why do we need to compromise? I think that's what yeah. I'm going towards to right now, where this this craft and the art needs to find some kind yeah. of harmony, working together without any form of compromise. Yeah. And just wrapping up this section so that we can go watch a couple of the films and talk a bit more about that. This, this one question I ask is, if you are to meet your biggest fan, you know, someone who has like wallpapers in their houses of you, you know? <laughs> you know, they look up to you, you know, they would consider you like a, a mentor in a big way and you only had five minutes with them, what would you teach them? You know, it's, it's look, that's always a tough one. Um, I don't know really what I'll teach them. I'm just someone who kind of works with energy and like how you, what you're looking for, what you're perceiving, who you are as a person, what you, you know, they're different things. But one thing I find is very important to tell people um, is that you must be honest to the story you want to tell that goes from everything, if it's your the culture that you're talking about, the aesthetic that you want to do, but also just to yourself. Because when your film comes out, you live with it, right? It's, it's a bit of your soul and it's a bit of your body and a bit of your mind. I'm never going to forget any film I've ever made. And who I am as an individual today, which dictates the films yeah. I make, are products of the films that I've made in my past, right? Yeah. The, the yeah. joys and the traumas, all of it, to get to who I am. And even if I say I'm going to stop making films, the human being that I am is from the films that I've made. So we have to understand yeah. that it's not just a job or a gig or, or, or some like, thing I'm going to do as a stepping stone. We have to be willing and we have to be honest that this is going to affect me as an individual. Mm. What do I want to do about it? Mm. Stories do I want to tell? Do I want to be okay with telling that story just so that I become famous, stick with me for the rest of my life. Those are decisions mm. we need to make early on. Yeah. It, it can't just be seen as like, uh, can be made at a whim. I think that's very yeah. important. All right, thank you so much, Alice, for this section of the conversation. I'm really excited to look at some of those stories. So I appreciate you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and thank you, Amil, for making time. You can join us on Rika's YouTube channel where we go deeper into Amil's work as a director. So see you on the next one.